Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to watchnebula.com slash not overthinking with a little hyphen thing in between the not and the overthinking. So watchnebula.com slash not dash overthinking. Through Nebula, you'll firstly get access to all of our podcast episodes ad-free. Secondly, you'll see exclusive content from me and a load of other educational-ish creators. And thirdly, it directly supports this podcast. So you'll incentivize me and Tame to record more episodes. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. A okay. real good time. Um, which one's mine? I feel alive. Ah, ha, ha. Hey guys, welcome back to the channel. <laughs> so, no way. Oh my God. Oh my God. No way. Right, do yours. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Not Overthinking. This week we're talking about Words that changed our lives. Words that changed our lives. Words that changed our lives. All right, I think we're good. Are we good? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Not Overthinking. Ali, how are you doing? Mate, I'm doing absolutely fantastic. Just got back from a three-day magic convention. Oh. I'm really cool. Um, and, and now here we are. How was the convention? The convention was very interesting. I felt uh, I left feeling very inspired. And I actually missed the final uh, comedy gala show, which was going on right about now, because we had to record this podcast before... Oh heading back to work but you know feel very inspired to create my own magic show someday um and i've uh, actually connected with some people at the cambridge uh, pentacle club which is like the kind of cambridge town magic society oh the town one okay. yeah no it's not that it's not like the uni one um but they do shows like a few times a year and apparently they sell out like a theater so oh, yeah. they were like yeah we're always looking for performers to do like you know 10 minutes set in, in our shows yeah so i think that'll be a good motivation for me to kind of formulate my own 10 minute show after years of planning it that sounds really cool one thing that I've been thinking about recently related to that is that, like, I think, you know, you're, you've obviously done a decent amount of magic in the past, and that's why you went to this convention. But do, do you think the convention would have been interesting to a, a an outsider to the field of magic? Like, just chucking someone into the deep end of the magic field, would that have been, like, interesting, or would they just not have been able to figure anything out? Because, like, certainly I found that occasionally I'm just chucked into the deep end of some topic I know nothing about. Like, I, I just happen to be reading some niche article about some random topic or like I'm listening to a podcast where they're discussing something that's like completely out of my you know fields of expertise but just like hearing these two experts talk about this thing I know nothing about it kind of helps me map out the field a bit and understand the lay of the land kind of do you think like attending attending like random conventions for niche things like magic could actually be interesting I think it would be like thinking back to a lot of these talks, they were full of jargon and inside jokes and kind of the sort of banter that you only get amongst amongst like, you know, the the in group, the group, group yeah. of uh, magicians. And so they'd be making fun of like, you know, they'd be saying things ironically, which people wouldn't get otherwise. You know, there was a guy doing they were doing a live recording of one of their podcasts today. And the guy on it was like really, really funny. He was like a comedy magician sort of guy. And he right. was talking about how back in the day he'd be he'd, he'd be up on stage with his four silver assistants, which is a, a reference to what magicians back in the day used to be like, I've got my four coins. These are my four silver assistants. Oh, okay. And how yeah, people yeah. used to be like, oh, I've got my 52 paper assistants here. You know, <laughs> that, that sort of stuff. And everyone was absolutely loving him taking the piss out of. So there's a lot of meta humor like that. Yeah. But also there was a lot of name dropping for people that like half of them I didn't even recognize despite having been in the whole magic thing for like eight years now, a long time. So I think as a complete newcomer, just thrown into the deep end. And given that there is this certain level of, of basic knowledge almost assumed by everyone giving the talks. Yeah. I think that gets you very quickly up to speed because then you're like, oh, okay, this all kind of makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. That sounds really cool. Yeah. I might try checking out uh, random niche conventions. And I also came across this, this thing the other day. I think it's called nichemuseums.com or something. Uh, and it's basically like a showcase of like really small niche museums in London and I think a few other cities that like you wouldn't find any touristy list. But the, theory, the, the person who runs it, his theory is basically like if you go to one of these niche museums, chances are a, it'll be like really interesting because it's about, you know, for example, there's, there's like a Bank of England museum. There's like some silver museum all about like silver in London, <laughs> right. London and silver, you know, like the, the metal and yeah. stuff like this and, and like even more niche ones. And and uh, his point is that, like, it'll be much more interesting to go to one of these tiny museums um, where, like, the person who manages it is probably the owner who also did everything in it. And so you can actually, like, talk to this guy and get, like, a really, really cool insight into some niche thing rather than, you know, you go to the Natural History Museum, you know, you see some dinosaur fossils, whatever. Yeah, it's cool. But, like, I don't know. There's not much 
connection there. So on that topic of niche museums, um, one of the one of the nice things about these magic conventions is that you get a very kind of large variety of people. Um, it is about 98% male, but <laughs> within that 98% male demographic, you get kind of age eight, you know, just getting into magic all the way up to like age 80 and sort of, you know, or just sort of, you know, old uh, Uncle Tom Cobbley doing card tricks, you know, coin from ear and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I was randomly sat next to this guy and I introduced myself to him. It turns out he he's from Boston, Massachusetts. Is that one of the, That's, in, in America? Place, yeah. It's a place, yes. Um, and he researches the history of witchcraft. Um, and like after, so I, so his, his backstory, he, was one of the people who was on the team that invented the internet really yeah so he was like project nice. manager for like this like company that I'd never heard of that like built the first like internet nodes what's the company i, I can't remember oh, okay. it was something it was something i hadn't it, i yeah, was like yeah. oh you know netscape uh, no, no it was it was it was like pre-netscape arpa darpa something like that possibly it was i i feel it was like a three-word kind of name to it and i was like yeah. i've literally never heard of this but he was a project manager for the internet and then he retired and now he researches witchcraft um <laughs> and he's written a book called uh, the the origins of christianity or something like from the perspective of kind of researching sort of archaeology and like specifically with coins so i you know i he, he mentioned he, he has this interest in collecting coins and he was like oh you know he 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 clocked that i was from a uh, islamic background uh, <laughs> nice. so he was like you know uh, as you know in islam you're not allowed to have like depictions of the prophet and stuff like that but did you know actually from the seventh century around from from arabia you actually got these coins and he was like showing me pictures and he researches the the history of religions and witchcraft based on coins and i was like whoa and he was like and you know he'd, he'd come all the way to london just for this magic convention but he said he said that he took an afternoon off to go to some like niche graveyard in a church in st james's park in london to find the headstone of like something to do with shake one of shakespeare's like girlfriends or something yeah that even the owners of the graveyard didn't know was there Mate. and they just had like a ladder kind of like opposite it because they just like didn't care and he kind of told them all about it and the thing that struck me about that was I was saying to him that hey, this this must make the experience of going to museums so much more interesting. He was like, "Yeah, it's incredible. It's like <laughs> when you've got that thing that you're researching, yeah, it becomes so much easier to understand, and you can learn so much more about yeah, it." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool, man. That's like the coolest thing. Yeah. That's absolutely sick. So when I move to Boston, then I'll I'll hit him up, and we can chat about museums and stuff. <sighs> That's really cool. Like, I've often actually thought that, like, basically, I think that you know, in 2019. There is very little that any, you know, I guess everyone has this sort of fantasy of going on an adventure and discovering some treasure kind of thing, right? Yeah. But look, the whole the whole globe is mapped out. I think dive, diving could be a good possibility because we still don't know that much about this, like the, the deep sea. But I think there's very little secrets to be found out in the world now. Like most, you know, you, you won't find some random cave that no one's ever been in before kind of thing. But... There are sort of secrets and adventures to be had by like going into uncharted territory in sort of history and stuff like that. Like this guy is probably the only person, well, one of the only people in the world who dig up old coins and study religion from that point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And like he is adding to, like, he, yeah, he's charting new territory that no one has ever charted before. And that must be pretty cool. Yeah, that seemed to be the vibe I got from him because I, I asked him to what extent do you trace kind of history books back to the primary sources? And he was like, yeah, to whatever extent I can, because he was like, once you start digging down into the actual sources behind what the history books were written about, you realize all the biases that all the different authors had and, you know, why this one book is like, you know, peddling a certain agenda and while the other one isn't. And I suppose the the parallel is sort of like in the kind of nonfiction self-help kind of book thing. You always get people like citing psychology studies as if, you, you know, oh, there was a study where, you know, they took a group of college graduates and, and made them do this and that. And like a whole like theory and like concept in this book is based around this thing. And if you actually look back on the original study and some people have done, you realize that actually this is a bit of a rogue study. They're, they're not at all showing this. This is just the point the author wanted to make. Yeah. Um, so that was another thing that struck me about chatting with this guy, this guy, David. Yeah. I think just in general, we're just so used to consuming second and third and fourth hand information. I don't know if I've ever consumed first-hand information about anything. <laughs> it's kind of sad, um, but that's really cool. Thanks for sharing. Anyway, what are we talking about today? So today I thought we'd talk about uh, words or phrases that have changed our lives. Oh, I thought we were talking about David Dobrik. <laughs> oh, yeah, I want to talk about that. Oh, God, yeah, okay. Well, you didn't ask me how my week was, so I didn't get a chance to tell you about David How was How was your week, Tamor? All right. <laughs> I had a... It was a decent week. Um... We were doing lots of apartment viewings. Um, we're looking for a place to live and sort of work out of. Um, so I think we found a nice place. I think place. you mean just work out of. <laughs> no, just live in. 
Really? What? Wait, I, I swear it's going to be a company property, though. Therefore, on the record, it needs to be an office, right? <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, I mean, but when you're talking to the landlord, the landlord or landlady, it's definitely not an office. <laughs> That's the angle I was going for. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Hopefully, the landlord slash landlady isn't listening to this. Uh, yeah. Anyway. anyway, lots of apartment viewings. But in my sort of procrastination time, I have been obsessed with david dobrik's vlogs on right. youtube for the uninitiated who is david dobrik what did he do? i feel like you've mentioned him on a podcast before maybe as like your final insight i don't know if anyone actually listens to the, the final bits of the podcast yeah i think a few weeks ago i, I probably started and i was like oh i've been like dabbling in david dobrik you so so you started off dabbling and now you're full-on plunging into david dobrik i'm plunging right? yeah on I mean, daily. Knee, knee deep in <laughs> david dobrik. Nice. um he is uh, a guy i think he's 22 years old or 23 uh who I think he started making YouTube videos maybe like four years ago or something. Maybe four or five years ago. Or maybe he was one of the original Vine people. Anyway, his whole thing was that he did a, he did one vlog every single day for about two years or something. Um, and now he just regularly makes videos. And his, his setup is pretty interesting in that his vlogs aren't really that much about himself. His vlogs are him filming his, his friends. Like he, he's usually behind the camera. Occasionally he'll be in the shot himself. But it's usually him filming his friends just doing like random stuff. Um, and he has like a group of friends which have come to be known as the vlog squad of like the various people who he's friends with who often feature in the vlog because they're often hanging out. Um, and so it, it's just kind of watching vlogs of just friends hanging out and doing stuff. And uh, I think I think what he does, re- it's really addictive, by the way. Have you, have you seen any of them? I've seen a few of them, but I haven't like binged oh, to the okay. extent that like you clearly have. Yeah. I think I'm only kind of like uh, elbows deep rather than knees deep. Right. Okay. Yeah um it's really so like he, one thing that i think he does really well is that all his vlogs are four minutes and 20 seconds long and really so yeah, yeah yeah no way yeah i know i've never noticed that <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i think that okay. that was one of the things he set out to like okay they're all gonna be like 420 you know whatever <laughs> uh just as a joke or something um anyway they're all four minutes and 20 seconds long and so it's like really fast paced and it, it's almost like watching a series of tiktoks for four minutes and 20 seconds where it's like you know just a bunch of short clips strung together with some loose narrative and then the next video, you kind of carry on the story because it's like the same people, the same, yeah, but a different sequence of clips. Right. Um, so I think that's partly why it's addictive. But I think it's also really addictive. I would say for the same reason that like watching people play video games is addictive and entertaining, which is that I think it's like, it's sort of like voyeurism. I, I think it's partly voyeurism, which is like, it's just nice to get a glimpse into other people's lives and watch other people do stuff. And then part of it is also, I think, and, and this is the video game sort of uh, parallel where you kind of live through them, you know, like when you're watching someone play a video game. And if they're really good. <laughs> and if they're really good, you're kind, you're kind of, you know, there at the edge of your seat with them. Yeah. And I remember when we were kids and I don't know, you'd like be playing Game Boy or something. You used to do this all the time. I think I, I didn't have my, my own Game Boy back then. Uh, and you were a massive twat, so you never really let me play on yours. But you'd always let me watch yours. No, and really. I, I'd be really into that. Oh, I'd be like, man. Ali, can I, I, I'm pretty sure I would have actually come to you and said, Ali, can I watch you play some, can I watch you play Pokemon or something? <laughs> play, play Pokemon Blue. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. like, uh, yeah, before Twitch, <laughs> back yeah. in uh, 1999, that's what you had to do. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be looking over Ali's shoulder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> trying, to, uh, trying to get a glimpse of the action. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... Yeah, you kind of live through the other person. And I think that's kind of why the vlog, uh, David Derrick's vlogs are addictive as well, because you're kind of watching he and his friends have fun and do things. And you're kind of, yeah, putting yourself in there and, and sort of having fun as well. <laughs> so you feel like you're a part of the fun as you're watching this unfold on camera. Yeah. Along with like 20 million other people per video. Yeah, precisely. Right. Um do you not get a sense that you're wasting your time by watching these videos? Absolutely, absolutely, mate. <laughs> One hundred. I deleted the YouTube app today because I thought hey, this has gone too, this has gone too far. Okay, and then you went on Safari, went on YouTube.com. Well, I'll probably start doing that from tomorrow. But but actually, today, this evening, I'll open my phone, instinctively scroll to like the page that YouTube used yeah, to page, be on, page five. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, let's continue adding as much friction as possible. Yeah, and then it's not there, and then I don't waste time. Um, anyway, I think it's very interesting, and. I think if you, if, if you, to be honest, I never used to get the whole vlog thing. I used to be like, oh, I didn't really get why people watch these vlogs, man. Like, it's so stupid. It's a waste of time. And then I gave it a chance. And I think it's an interesting experience to watch. So I would recommend watching some David Dobrik, Dobrik vlogs if you aren't into vlogs at all, really. Um, it could give like an interesting view as to why people watch this stuff. Okay. That sounds interesting. I'll give it a go. 
Yeah. Um, I had a similar thing when I, st- when I first discovered vlogs in like 2017 and started watching Casey Neistat vlogs because he was like the OG vlogger um, and found myself very entertained by a lot of the videos. But then I, fe- I, I found myself as I was becoming more creator and less consumer, you know, to use the pretentious phrases, I stopped watching a lot of other YouTubers because it was like, you know, why am I watching this guy when I could, you know, when I should be doing this myself? Right. Yeah. And so I wonder if there's a parallel there, like like authors doing, oh, I know, like people who write books do a lot of reading as well. So maybe there isn't really a parallel, but yeah. I think it's just like studying the craft. I'm surprised you don't watch more YouTube, to be honest. I'm sure there's a lot to be gained for you from watching YouTube. Yeah, like I've, I've recently discovered a few new channels that have like, well, once I discovered them and started binging their stuff, it gave me so many more content ideas. I'm yeah. like, oh, I see how they've done this and that. And it's not really watching it for the entertainment. It's more watching it. Yeah, like the, as a to yeah, study, like, yeah, like actors and stuff probably watch like you know a few movies a week just mm. to study movies, right? I think you should actually watch, you should study Dobrik to see his style of stuff because like it's it's like completely on the opposite end of the YouTube spectrum to your stuff, which is yeah. like oh productivity, blah blah blah, yeah, all that blah blah blah. <laughs> and I'm sure there is there are th- sort of things that he does and sort of the, the stylistic elements of his his side of the spectrum that you can. Take yeah, it. and even from the the few videos of him I've seen, he's clearly got like a camera set up in his Tesla, for example, oh, as yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. a very low friction way of just getting good content while you're sitting in a car with some mates. <laughs> and I've I've been thinking, right, you know, what like a, a screw and attachment do I need for my camera to plug it into the car? Um, so even little things like that. But then, but then also at this magic convention, because a lot of the professional magicians do kind of comedy as like a main part of their act. Um, they were they were kind of talking about the uses of comedy in an act. Um, and well, one of the guys was saying that uh, he, he got asked the question that who are your favorite comedians these days? And he was like, well, you know, when when stand up comedians watch other comedians stuff, they're not watching it and laughing. They're sort of kind of like have their arms folded and like, huh? Oh, yeah. OK, I see how he's done that. You know, take some notes, take some notes. Oh, OK, cool. And he's got like stony face just watching it purely analytically. Yeah. So he says that he's actually lost his own enjoyment of comedy <laughs> from the fact that he now works as a stand up comedian plus magician on the side. That's funny. Well, or rather not funny. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> We've actually been getting a lot of comments about how, how much people love your laugh. Oh, yeah, you know that? that's always nice. <laughs> <laughs> it starts a very kind of falsetto and, and then becomes very kind of low-pitched. Yeah. Is, is, is that something that you developed over time or is that just a... Yeah, I, I sort of practice it a few times a day. A few times a day. No. Kind of thing. Impressive. Um, that, that's no, that's it's very endearing. I'm sure all our, all, our, all of our listeners agree. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I do appreciate those comments. So thanks to, thanks to everyone who who's written in to say that the other thing that sort of on the david dobrik note is that i i really appreciated at this magic convention uh was this idea of kind of multidisciplinary thinking in that um sort of getting elements of different disciplines to your own and applying them to your own thing to make it more better yeah um you know there's so many examples of this like all across the board and i feel like any success that i've had in inverted commas has always been as a result of combining stuff from different disciplines rather than you know being becoming tunnel vision on one one particular thing yeah yeah cross pollination is always good i think cross pollination it's a good word right so the actual topic of uh today's podcast is uh words or phrases that have changed our lives and by that i mean i mean sort of words that sort of describe a concept that's otherwise quite fuzzy and quite hard to grasp and to sort of conjure up and so I found that there are a few there are a few words in particular that after I sort of saw the word used in a particular context, it's like whoa that like perfectly describes this weird complicated fuzzy thing that I often think about and I'm trying to get at but I can't really grasp at. And then having the word ha- having a word to describe it, a lets you think about it and b lets you kind of keep it in mind much more easily. And so I'll kick us off where uh, the I think probably the biggest word that is. Well, the word that has changed, it's not that big a word. The word that has changed my life in the biggest way, probably in the past few years, is the word mm. charitable. Oh. Um, so the, I think charitable, uh, the word is used quite often. I think I sort of started hearing it in sort of philosophy kind of circles at university. Um, I guess, yeah, it, it, there's like the literal meaning of, uh, I guess, you know, say someone's charitable if they sort of you know, give to charity or whatever. Um, but th- I think the more useful meaning is, um, I guess, uh, one context uh, that that I think is very useful in is is if, for example, uh, you know, if if Ali, you made some kind of statement or something, you said, uh, "Well, I, I kind of feel that like 
so-and-so is like this way, um, then, you know, there's, there's a range of ways I could interpret whatever thing you just said. Mm. Um, and there are sort of charitable ways of interpreting it where I give you the benefit of the doubt and I assume that, okay, you know, I could interpret it that way, but Ali probably meant this thing. Uh, sort of like interpreting it in a choosing to interpret it in a positive light. So charitable is just sort of, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's like, it's, it's linked to the idea of being nice, but it's like a particular form of being nice where you're sort of giving other people the benefit of the doubt and uh, sort of viewing them or like intentionally viewing them in the best possible light uh, when you're considering something they've just said or something they've just done. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely a good phrase, uh, a, good, a good word. I'm not sure like when I first came across the word, but I'm not sure it had quite the impact on me as it did on you. I think the first time I came across this concept was in some like, quote from like islamic scholar who is the the idea of uh, 70 excuses oh yeah um which it, I, th- I think the quote goes something on the lines of um if someone has done you harm then think about the, think of 70 excuses for that behavior and if you can't then don't like judge them or something like that right um and that is basically this yeah, principle yeah. of yeah being charitable towards other people's intentions and, and stuff yeah um so yeah, i think it's i think it's a really good word and now whenever like you know, whenever someone says something that I'm considering, I can now very easily th- literally think in my head, uh, you know, is my interpretation of this charitable? Am I being charitable here? Uh, whereas I think before hearing this word, you know, I'd have some vague notions around like, I, well, actually, to be honest, I never really thought about it too much before before the word. Like, I'd obviously be vaguely aware of this sort of idea, you know, of giving people benefit of the doubt and so on. But like the word kind of gave me a memorable way to sum it up so i think about it a lot more often and i try and like i try and be charitable um, as much as possible yeah i've noticed that you actually say the phrase oh that's not very charitable or oh that's probably not a very charitable way of looking at it like quite quite a few times just in everyday conversation oh, okay. with me yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like practically everything i say you're like oh Ali, well i don't think that's very charitable <laughs> yeah i think it's really good <laughs> <laughs> so is that something that, that that actively goes through your head whenever you like Yes. Oh, I, yeah. Okay. It's, it's almost like a default thing now. Wherever, where, like, whenever I am reacting to something, part of my thought process and the reaction will be like, "Is this charitable? Is this a, a charitable reaction or interpretation or whatever?" And like, yeah, it, it's just like just having this word means that it's like part of how I think about things. So it's 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 a filter through which your thought process kind of goes. Yeah. Like, almost necessarily at this point yeah 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 and i think that is because of the word like if i hadn't come across this word i would like my mind i would just think in a very different way than i do now okay. and that's it's like it's insane how much yeah how, how a word can just do that yeah that's very interesting um i would guess the for me the closest thing that comes to sort of this this particular concept is when i first started reading about stoicism um and like this whole you know stoicism with a capital s that whole school of greek philosophy that really seemed to put into words like all of the different kind of fuzzy ways in which i'd sort of been thinking but never really had the vocabulary or had had never really come across the vocabulary to describe so the stoics have this thing of um you know uh it's not uh, events in themselves that cause us unhappiness but the story that we tell ourselves about those events right yeah um and there's a common adage in, within stoicism between it which which is something like um in between stimulus and response, there is a space and that space is for us to choose our response. And so like, since I first came across that, like almost immediately, all of my thoughts and judgments about absolutely everything started getting filtered through this process of like, you know, I'm feeling angry about this, but oh, hang on, what's, what's the story I'm really telling myself? Yeah. And I found that like, since coming across that, I have like, I can count on one hand the number of times I've been angry or pissed off or annoyed at anything at all. Yeah. Just because it's just immediately there as a, okay, you know, what's the story? Like if I'm yeah. like waiting in a queue, it's like, if, 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 I'm, if I'm feeling bored even, I'm like, okay, no. Yeah. You know, it just, it's not even allowed to go further than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I, now fi- I now find it very, I now find it very difficult to empathize with people who have strong emotions because it just seems completely, <laughs> it's just completely off the line of my own thinking that completely that gets filtered out by the stoicism kind of question that yeah. eliminates all negative emotion pretty much. Right. Oh, that's really cool. So what kind of, I mean, have you found that it's changed your initial reactions to things? Because this is what I always struggle with where I'm often, I'm, I'm often disappointed with my, initial my, with my like instinctive reaction to something and then i have to correct it intentionally oh but that's absolutely fine like that uh, that phenomenon is is described multiple times in in these books about stoicism yeah they say that you can't do anything about your 
your gut reaction, but you can do every, but, but you can change every other thing that, that comes along with it. Yeah. And I guess um, over, over time, it sort of feeds into your gut reaction and over, uh, yeah, over a I few think, years, I maybe it does. start to change your gut reactions. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and for me, the thing that I, that probably comes closest to that for me is the feeling of jealousy. Like oh. if, I, if I see someone else as being successful, then the gut reaction will be like, oh, you know, that feeling internally of like, oh, damn, <laughs> are they doing so well? And then it just gets completely obliterated yeah. by a, a tidal wave of conditioning and quotes and phrases and like clips from the Tim Ferriss show and yeah. like interviews of Darren Brown and all these people are just like yeah. being like, no. And this cacophony of stimulus comes in like overtakes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like when uh, in, in Avatar The Last Heaven when he enters like the Avatar state and he gets connected to like all the hundred avatars yeah. before him. It's like that, you're, you're your sort of eyes go blue. Yeah. Tim Ferriss, Gary Vee, they all like line up, like and their spirits are lined up. Yeah, it is exactly like that. But you can't really do anything about the initial reaction. Yeah. Um, there's a nice, there's another nice quote, which is that um, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Yeah, that's nice. And so, you know, you can't do anything about the pain, but it's it's the suffering that is a result of the story that we tell ourselves. But, nice. Yeah. Anyway, um, so on the topic of kind of words or phrases that have changed our lives. I'm not sure I, I've got any that have changed my life to that that degree, but um, one thing that I came across fairly early on was uh, through uh, through at least my guru Tim Ferriss. This uh, and, and the phrase was a deferred life plan. Ah. Um, and I first came across that like years and years ago. I think maybe in like 2011, 10, around about that time. Uh, and by deferred life plan, he describes the um, invisible shackle, the invisible life script that oh. we all live by. Hello. Uh, exactly. Although he didn't quite use that word, unfortunately, hmm. uh, Mr. Trick there. Uh, he describes the invisible life script of, well, you know, you go to school, go to, to get good grades, to go to a decent university, to get good grades, to get a good job, to then, I suppose, get a big house and stuff and then retire and then have fun. Yeah. You know, that, that implicit life script that we all sort of live by unless we actively question it. Yeah. And just kind of like seeing that called the deferred life plan <laughs> it feels like such a derogatory way of putting it <laughs> and so it's really colored my view of that particular lifestyle as 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 being a definite negative yeah like if i think like planning my own life and ever if i ever start to have like a sort of mindset where i'm thinking in terms of deferred life plan if i'm if i'm ever thinking something like oh once i do x then i'll be happy yeah. that sort of thinking gets eliminated by this phrase deferred life plan because I'm like, no, this is a deferred life plan. I'm not yeah. going to say, you know, once I'm in 10 years time when I'm a consultant, then I'll be able to enjoy my life. Yeah. No, I want to enjoy every day on its own merit. Yes. Um, and so that phrase has, has really stuck with me kind of from that, that point onwards. That's a nice one. I've heard that from you a bunch of times. I guess I haven't read Tim Ferriss. Um, but yeah, that's a nice thing to reflect on. I'll, I'll try, and, uh, try and think about that more often. Okay, what's point number two for you? So the second word um, that's changed my life, this is not in, not quite to the same degree as charitable, uh, but it's the word comrade. And All right, what do you mean? <laughs> uh, you may recall one of the few books I've read. <laughs> what, The Communist Manifesto? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that's like really, I would not have expected that. <laughs> yeah, it's all about cross-pollination, man. It's all about getting ideas. Exactly. <laughs> no, so the in, in, in the book, uh, The Courage to be Disliked, one of the... Uh, three or four books that you've read. Yeah, uh, one of one of my main takeaways was to uh, try and view other human beings as my comrades, and and this comrade is very good here because this is something I was trying to get at, like long before the book. I was like trying to get at this idea, and I was thinking that like you know sometimes when I look at other people or like I see other people in public, for some reason I just have like I just have like negative vibes towards them really, really <laughs> wow i don't know like the example i've given before on the podcast is like you know you're on the train or something you're i don't know maybe you're a bit tired or something on the way back from work or something and then there's like a group of youths kind of uh you know laughing having fun yeah. being a bit loud and boisterous and i like yeah in, in that situation you feel that pang of loneliness all i've got is me and my phone <laughs> Got the Kindle app on my phone. <laughs> gonna gonna read Tim Ferriss again. <laughs> <laughs> While these youths are having fun and being boisterous, like being lads, <laughs> <laughs> being lads, exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, like my initial reaction to that would would kind of be like, oh, you know, screw these people for some for some reason. And I, and I'd think like, why am I why am I feeling that way? Like I should treat every other person as if they're sort of. Well, and that's where the word comes in. Like, what is the word for that? Right? Like, it's not friend. It's definitely not friend because like. Yeah, you don't know them. Like, how can you treat them like they're your friend, you know? But comrade, comrade sums it up really well. Mm. Because comrade is like, 
it sort of implies that you're you're all in this together, you know? You're all trying to overthrow... <laughs> I, I, I actually don't know anything about communism. I don't know what they're trying to do, but... <laughs> do you know which country? Russia. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Roughly what time period? Um... Early 1900s? Yeah, fantastic. Really? Like early to mid-1900s. Yes. <laughs> Mate, you, you've pretty much got it. That All multidisciplinary right. thinking right there. Yeah. Um, so I think the word comrade just really perfectly sums up the sort of fuzzy concept of, I guess, w one way in which to consider your fellow man. Um, and so, yeah, I, I often when I'm just like existing in the, <laughs> existing in the world I, and, you know, there's people around me or anything... The word comrade will pop up and I'll, I'll just kind of feel a bit better. You know, it'll be like, oh, yeah, we're, we're all comrades here. We're all in this together kind of thing. <laughs> we're all in this together. You know, yeah. like going into falsetto as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be done. Um, have you had this comrade experience in other examples of your life other than just kind of the general public where you remind yourself that the boisterous youths are also comrades? Because I can think of two examples in my own life where I've really felt the com camaraderie, the comradeship, oh. I was going to say. And I read, then I realized there was a word for it. Yeah. The camaraderie. Oh, yeah. Um, one of them is when I'm at work. Okay. So especially when it's nighttime. Um, like, you know, I'd be walking into the doctor's office and I'd be coming out and then there's like a cleaner there at like 10 p.m. Yeah. And you just kind of like smile, make eye contact, nod, be like, hey, man, how's it going? We're like, you know, yeah. it's like the thing. And yeah. At least to me, I feel like a kind of sense of kinship and comradeship and camaraderie yeah, yeah, yeah. with the dude. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And that's really nice. And and the other circumstance in which it, in which I really felt that was um, during the uh, pantomime that we put on every year at the clinical school. Yeah. Uh, where we'd get like 100 people all doing different things, but all working towards this common goal of putting on this big show. And everyone is sort of like kind of putting putting their best in and not getting paid for it and like sort of purely doing it because it's yeah. fun and everyone else gets so so involved with it similar to sort of the feeling that we that i used to have on these uh wilderness medicine retreats that mm. we used to do where you'd get 20 people going to a cottage in the middle of nowhere similar to a low optionality retreat that we've been getting lots of emails about on that note oh yeah um that also feels like a sense of comradeship camaraderie. yeah yeah i think like another couple of places where i feel that is i remember back in school when it used to be like exam season and everyone's like kind of uh you know, milling about outside the exam hall about to go in mm. and everyone's kind of got their calculator and their pencil case and they're sort of like reading their notes at the last minute. There's a real sense of like camaraderie there as everyone's yep. going into the exam hall. Definitely. Um, and then, yeah, I had it at university as well in sort of exam period where like everyone's dressed up and, you know, we had uh, like an outfit you had to wear and everyone's kind of dressed up the same, like going into the exam hall. And you kind of feel the sense of kinship with these people who you actually don't know. And I just get, whenever that happens, I just kind of think like, man, like, what if you could feel that all the time whenever yeah. you're just like surrounded by your fellow <laughs> apart human Apart from just PR, apart from when people are dressed up in black tie with carnations in there, <laughs> their bonnets or whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah, like it would just be, it, must, it would just be amazing if you feel that kind of kinship and camaraderie with everyone around you all the time. Like that would be sick. And so that's something I'm, I'm trying to do. Okay, that's a, that's a very good insight. I'm going to start thinking of using the word comrade a lot more in my, in my head. Yeah. Um, I hope they don't get arrested for it. <laughs> uh, so my kind of second one is what do we want to do I think it's got to be and you're going to you're going to be like oh it's it's got to be the growth mindset oh no oh. I back it I back it <laughs> you, you back the growth mindset um, so the growth mindset for those of us who are unfamiliar with it is this idea that uh, it's it's sort of the opposite of the fixed mindset and the growth mindset is this idea that everything that we're doing is just, you know, it's all part of the growth process. So if you fail at something, it's fine because you're just learning from it. If you do something badly, it's fine because you're learning from it. If you do something well, it's not that big a deal because you're learning from it. And it's all a sort of like a growth trajectory. Whereas the fixed mindset is sort of the view that some people have that maybe I used to have, maybe not, which is that, you know, if you get something wrong in class, you fail a test or something, then you feel as if you are a failure and you are not good at the thing. And it's a very kind of fixed view of the world that, you know, I have like my limit, my abilities are fixed and any threat to that is going to cause me pain, cause me anguish, is going to make me cry, make me upset. Um, and I really don't know when I first came across this word growth mindset, but in, as soon as I did, like I remember it like immediately I started realizing it was in all aspects of life. And and then I would kind of like tell tell my friends about it. You know, if I had friends who were like stressing, stressing overly about exams or worried about putting their hands up in class because they didn't want to get a question wrong and look like an idiot. Just the phrase, you know, it's just a growth mindset, man. Um, I imagine it would have pissed them off significantly <laughs> hearing me say it for the umpteenth time. But it just like perfectly encapsulates all of the whole sort of 
positive psychology, but also self-help. And like all of that stuff just gets encapsulated into the phrase growth mindset. And if you can have and develop a growth mindset, then it's just, it's, it's a superpower. And I, so I would say that's one of the phrases that's changed my life. That's really cool. Yeah, I think that's, <clears throat> I think that's a, a sort of important one for me as well. I don't know how much the phrase itself has kind of played into this. Um, but yeah, I think the, the underlying sentiment is, is definitely a, a big one for me. To be honest, I think like sometimes when I look back to my teenage years, I think I actually had more of a growth mindset back then oh, hello. than I do now, which is disappointing. Because I remember back then, like, I don't know, actually, I'll, I'll think about that some more. Maybe we can talk about that on, on another podcast. Cool. Have you got any more words or phrases? There? Yeah. So my, my third and final word uh, is the word intrinsic. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> it's sounding pretentious already. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the backstory on this one is that in the summer after my second year of university, I did an internship uh, at a an ed tech company, an educational technology company uh, <laughs> called Wiz Education. You can check it out, wiz.com, W-H-I-Z-Z.com. Oh, that's a good domain. That must have been expensive. Uh, I think it's been around for a while, so they probably got it, got it on the cheap nice. back in 2004 or something. Uh, anyway, did this uh, internship at this educational technology company. Um, and that was actually really good because uh, the company's product is essentially like a a sort of uh, an online maths tutor that like figures out uh, what what sort of topics you're good at and what topics you're less good at. And it like optimizes the stuff it gives you based on that. So like if you're really strong in fractions, it won't keep giving you fraction stuff. So it's a, an adaptive online maths tutor is the word that they use. Uh, anyway, so as part of this internship, um, I did a lot of, it, it, I was mostly doing tech stuff, but it, obviously it was in the education domain. And so I, I, I had to do a lot of like reading and self-study about sort of uh, teaching and pedagogy and education, all this kind of stuff. And that made me come across the idea of intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. Oh, um, this is sounding like one of the points I would make rather than one of the points you would make. Really? Yeah. It's like a classic self-help thing, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Oh, crap. It's like, you know, pop psychology 101. Oh. But sorry, please continue. Don't let All my... right, scrap this one. <laughs> <laughs> Pick another one instead. You've got, a, you've got an image to maintain. <laughs> exactly. No, so this idea of intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation, uh, I think is quite important in sort of education and teaching where uh, in an ideal world, you'd want students to be uh, what's called intrinsically motivated. So they'd want to sort of learn for its own sake rather than extrinsically motivated, which would be, you know, they're only learning so that they can, uh, you know, get a certificate for doing well in a test or they're only learning because their parents will give them five pounds if they do their homework on time or whatever. Um, and so uh, this sort of let me point to this idea of, yeah, just like being int intrinsically driven by something versus uh, being extrinsically driven by something. And to be honest, I don't, I can't remember. I think this, I think like the, the terminology actually provided a turning point from for me where now I, I basically, I think ever since that summer, and I, I think it was mostly because of the terminology. Um, ever since then, I basically, like that, that's another sort of part of my thought process now where like, if I want to do something, I will think about, okay, do I intrinsically want to do this? Or is this, you know, am I doing this sort of for extrinsic reasons? Um, and I'm sort of, I feel like internally, I'm sort of allergic to doing things for anything but intrinsic reasons. Um, and I and I think the terminology played a big part in that. Okay, so what's an example of stuff that you've, where, where, where this has had an impact on your life? Let me have a think. Um, I think a big part of it is like, it helped me get off the uh, prestige bandwagon, the sort of, uh, you know, bandwagon of uh, trying to collect badges of prestige from, you know, where, here and there and stuff. And so, uh, for example, when it came to like applying for jobs and things, I think the, the sort of intrinsic, uh, intrinsic mindset kind of got me out of the sort of pressure to... I don't know, try and get a job at some prestigious company that I probably didn't really care about for any other reason than it's just prestigious, um, for example. And yeah, to be honest, I think a lot of it is just like small stuff that comes up um, that isn't too notable. But I think it actually has changed the way I think. So would this intrinsic versus extrinsic idea come, come into play if, for example, 
it's a choice between going to a party, let's say, and not going to that party. Let's say you don't really feel too up for it and you're like, oh, I don't really want to. You're like, you're, intrinsically, you don't really want to. But you know that if you go to that party, it would actually be good social contact. You might meet new people. There would be a lot of like extrinsic benefits to that. Is that a realm in which this is? No, I, no, I don't think so. So you're not allergic to the extrinsic motivators of meeting new people and potentially making new friends and stuff. I wouldn't say they're extrinsic motivators because, like, intrinsically, that is stuff I want to do, right? Like, I don't know. It just, it doesn't, I, it's not something I think about in that domain, I guess. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Um, it's just because I was, I, was, I was sort of thinking about that at this at this magic convention, kind of going back to that. Um, when, like, yesterday I was being super social and, like, I was sitting next to people and chatting and stuff. And then this morning when I got there, I, I hadn't had a coffee. I, I felt like a haze in my head, genuinely, you know, oh. <laughs> probably a bad sign of caffeine addiction. Um, and then like after the first lecture, I was like, you know what? I actually just want to go to the restaurant by myself, sit with my iPad and try and draft out this week's email newsletter and just have fish and chips by myself. Right. And I was, I was, I was really thinking, I was, I was like, oh damn, that's kind of disappointing. I mean, you know, this, this convention happens once a year. There's all these kind of big names in magic here. I could be going up to people and chatting to people, but it felt in the moment that the activation energy for that was just so high. And I was like, you know what, actually I'd much rather just sit on my iPad and kind of tap away. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm not sure if that was a good decision because when I did talk to people, I was like, oh, I'm so glad I talked to you. Yeah. And like good things would happen. Whereas good things never happen that much when you're just sitting on your iPad. Yeah. Equally, sort of like this this evening, it was a decision between coming back home at 7 p.m. to record this podcast and then go back to Cambridge versus getting back home at 11 p.m. after watching this comedy comedy magic show. And I was thinking if I watch the comedy magic show, I'll have so that, that'll probably have far more, far more benefits than just kind of getting an extra two hours of sleep. But... In the moment, I was like, oh, you know what? Actually, I don't care. I'll just value, I value the two hours of sleep more. Huh. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know about whether intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation would have helped for those those instances. But yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah, I, I don't really think about it in that domain. Uh, but I think just, just the word intrinsic kind of gets at this idea of like something that is really coming from yourself. Are you, are you doing it for yourself? Or are you doing it for others? Yeah, kind of. Kind of, maybe. But it kind of, it, it just gets at this idea of like, is this coming from like, me and sort of deep within me and like yeah it points at that That's okay cool um so my final one is uh the phrase hedonic treadmill oh. which is another kind of pop psychology 101 so perhaps you want to talk about it <laughs> <laughs> anyway the idea of the hedonic treadmill is that um it's it's that phenomenon that we've all experienced where you want something and then you get it and then it becomes the new normal and it takes and then you want even more in order to get that same kind of hit of happiness from it it's like you know the first time you get a phone, it's like, oh my God, next level. The second time you get a phone, you're like, whoa, I've got a new phone. The third, fourth, fifth, sixth time, it, be it becomes the new normal. You don't really care anymore. Yeah. Equally for things like, you know, making money when you're 13 and working, you know, four hours to make like 12, qu like six quid an hour, then getting a hundred pounds, it's like, oh my God, this is absolutely fantastic. Then you get, then you turn 18 and you're like, oh, okay, it's a bit less money. Then you're 25 and you've got your own business and stuff. And now that amount of money that was once such a huge deal to you when you were 13 no longer really makes much difference to your life. This idea of the hedonic treadmill that we need more of this, we need more of the thing to get that hit of hedonism, kind of like with drugs, you know, you develop a resistance to them or whatever. Tolerance, Tolerance to them, yeah. And so hedonic treadmill is a phrase that I, I think about on a daily basis, like literally whenever I'm thinking of buying anything, like yeah. anything at all, I'm thinking, am I, I, I just kind of think hedonic treadmill and I ask myself, you know, yes or no. Yeah. Um, and that's a big thing that's, stopping me from like upgrading the car or like you know getting new stuff for the house because i just think you know is it, is it actually going to make me happier probably not i'm just going to climatize to it and then i'll just want the next the next big thing right and i think a sort of tied to this is is, is another idea that i recently came across called lifestyle inflation which oh, is yeah. the the tendency for our expenses and our lifestyle to increase um as our own income does and so eventually you sort of you just you you're like, you know, you might get a raise at work because you've gone from F1 to F2 of being a doctor. So you make an extra £4,000 a year. But then you'd be like, oh, okay, I'm making an extra £4,000 a year. I deserve this new car or I deserve, you know, this nicer sofa or whatever. The lifestyle kind of creeps. Lifestyle creep is another way. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's another way that a lot of personal finance people describe it as. So like all of these different concepts are part of the kind of avatar, 100 years of, <laughs> you know, uh, connection with the, with the sensei and stuff that, yeah. that comes into my head whenever I'm buying anything. Yeah. I'm like, right, <laughs> you know, right, come on. <laughs> come on, Mr. Money Mustache, speak to me. Tell yeah. me about the hit on the treadmill. Tell me why I, sh I shouldn't buy that Tesla. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one to end on. Hedonic treadmill. Cool, let's start to wrap things up then. I have an insight this week that I'd like to share with you. It's come from uh, a 
a social session that I had this morning. I had brunch with some friends uh, this morning. Ooh. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. Um, yeah. Uh, it was, there were four of us. We had brunch together. Uh, it lasted. Uh, it lasted about an hour and a half. Oh, and that's well, the, not very long. Yeah, that's the that's the issue. Um, so, basically, what happened was we had brunch at this place. Then, like you know, we were all done with our mains, maybe like an hour in, and then the lady came and like took the plates away, and she was like, "Do you want anything else?" And I felt like there was maybe she was maybe like trying to put pressure on us to be like to either like order more stuff or to leave. Because rather than like sit around. And so I thought, okay, no, like, yeah, this has been like a very short sesh so far. And I was like, yeah, yeah, well, I'll get some more stuff. And so I got like some toast and uh, and a coffee or something. Um, and so then it sort of lasted maybe like half an hour longer. And then the lady came again and she was like, cool, are you all done? And then, and then one of the people who I was with asked for the bill and we paid the bill. And then sort of after paying the, the bill, everyone just kind of disbanded. And afterwards, I was kind of thinking about this because I was thinking like, man, that felt really short. I would have loved to hang out for like, you know, another couple of hours or something. And I think what basically happened was we weren't intentional enough about it. And we were kind of we were kind of slaves to uh, the logistics of brunch rather than, uh, you know, the ideal. Rather than making brunch your own bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, precisely. And so like logistically, like, yeah, you go to a place, you spend an hour, an hour and a half. The lady brings the bill, you pay the bill, and and then you leave. That's the end of brunch, right? Um, and so we were, we kind of like succumbed to the logistics. Mm. And at that point, uh, I don't know. I think everyone just kind of felt felt compelled to disband. Uh, and I was chatting to one of my friends afterwards who was there, and I was like, mm, "That felt a bit short, don't you think?" And he was like, "Yeah, I was thinking the same thing." <laughs> and then we kind of decided that. Um, Essentially, a two a two stage brunch is actually mm. pretty good, uh, where you kind of well you'll have like a brunch at one place, and then you'll kind of get like I don't know pastry and a coffee at, the, at like another coffee shop, and so you have like two bits. I think with with dinner sessions, it's a bit easier because there is it, it is kind of like a standard thing to do dinner and then do dessert if everyone's if everyone's still vibing, and then you can be like, oh yeah, do you guys want to get some dessert? Whereas after brunch, it's like. Yeah. Should we get some coffee? Oh, uh, we've just had we, two already. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, exactly. Should we get some coffee? Oh, I'm, we just had I'm coffee. all caffeinated up. <laughs> Does that off brunch? Is that a thing? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So like logistically, uh, there isn't really something there for you. <laughs> but I think you've got to look past that and uh, you know, do, do what you want. And so now I think this has made me like acutely aware of uh, the logistical shackles <laughs> of social interaction. Uh, and uh, I won't let that get in the way ever again. Oh, fantastic. That's really good to hear. I think that's a good insight that brunch should be a two-step process. And then it, it does give you the option to kind of disband at, at, after step one if you actually decided that we're no longer vibing or you actually want to hustle today rather than just hang out with the boys. Yeah. I'm assuming it was just boys at this full it, it, was, it was indeed just boys. Okay. Yes. I'm sorry to hear that, but I, guess, uh, <laughs> I, as, I think as we've talked about, it is a different vibe. It is a different vibe. When you start adding, Precisely. adding the female race to the mix. Yeah. Um, my insight comes again from this magic convention. Like I keep on, keep on bringing it up. Um, and that is about kind of canned lines within comedy. Ooh. And by canned lines, I don't mean canned lines. I mean tropes or like, you know, routines or uh, set pieces. Yeah, sure. Um, and like the, the, there was a joke that's, that this like really risque magician told a few like on, on, on like one of the Friday night performances where, you know, he was, he, was, he was doing this thing where he was, like, going out into the audience and he was being like, hey, so where are you from? And, you know, what do you do? And yeah, yeah. there was this this like lady in the front row who said she was from uh, Devon and, and Birmingham. And he was like, Devon and Birmingham, you know, that means absolutely nothing to me. And, you know, that got a laugh because, you know, most of the audience was from the UK. And, you know, it would make sense why Devon and Birmingham are totally random for, like, some American. Yeah. And then his next thing was like, oh, so what do you do? And she said, oh, well, you know, I, I work with autistic children. And the guy said, oh, and what do you do when you're not at the convention? <laughs> and everyone just completely lost their minds because that was just such a fantastic line to deliver at yeah. that perfect moment in this magic convention where yeah. everyone knows about the tropes associated with magicians, you know, and yeah. all, all, the, all the negative vibes of that. And I was just thinking that there are so many circumstances in which that sort of reply, and what do you do when you're not at X? Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. such a good thing. And it's sort a good of, format. It's a, it's a fantastic format. And now, and, and like, I feel like, Part of the the technique, at least the, the way I see it, from from developing, from uh, essentially for for being funnier, is by being able to notice these easy 
easy one-liners that you can just yeah. plop in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. I, w- I wonder if, for people who are very funny, there is, a, you know, this this algorithm that's kind of running, yeah. trying to figure out all the permutations of what someone says to, to figure out if there's actually an alternative way of yeah, interpreting yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if there's like a, you know, you know switch old switcheroo that you can pull. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So I'm intrigued by the idea of, of kind of like writing these down and then trying to develop this into a kind of systematic way of being funnier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely a thing. And like, if, if you watch a lot of uh, Would I Lie to You clips on YouTube, like Lee Mack is very good at, the, at these like standard formats. Yeah. And he's like lightning fast at the standard formats. Yeah. And like, it's, yeah, it's definitely a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so a list of standard formats for, <laughs> for jokes. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I just need to watch more comedy clips on YouTube. Man. Just watch all of the Would I Lie to You clips, dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. It's sick. <laughs> Maybe that'll be my new activity while commuting. Because at the moment, it's just like either audiobook or podcast at 2x speed. Yeah. Um, on that note, one of the episodes of My First Million, they were talking about people who listen to podcasts at 2x speed. And they were saying, oh, these guys, like, they've got it all wrong. Because, you know, <laughs> if you're listening to a podcast at 2x speed, then you're doing it wrong. You know, you should listen to it at normal speed so you can reflect on it and take notes and stuff like that. Yeah. And I was like, I see what you're saying, but I'm still going to listen at 2x speed because I just think it's more it's more valuable. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think maybe watching comedy clips on, on the YouTube <laughs> yeah, that's great. Might be a also what listen to Conan O'Brien is a friend, Conan's podcast. That's also really good for like off the cuff comedy. Do you listen to that at two X speed or No, I listen to that at one X speed. Okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that'll be my first one X speed podcast. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's a good t- good good place to end this. Should we uh, end by reading a review? Go for it. Uh, while Ali's bringing up a review, I will just uh, put out a reminder that we now have a Twitter account uh, where we post updates about, you know, when the podcast is going to be released and so on. Um, so if you are interested in uh, keeping abreast with, with that kind of information, <laughs> uh, then then follow us at uh, N Overthinking on Twitter. So that's N, the letter, followed by Overthinking. That was the best handle we could uh, we could get. Oh, this is interesting. Okay. Always a great joke to listen to from Rui Wang via Apple Podcasts from the UK who posted this on 31st of December 2019. She, she says, I assume it's a she, I feel obliged to post a review on the show. I've always found it pleasant to listen to, and the episode of Naval Ravikant's Wealth Creation Tweet Storm was so extremely useful to me personally that it will literally change my life. As someone who, re- who read a fair amount and listens to tens of hours of podcasts each week, admittedly never been a regular listener of Tim Ferriss, when commuting and doing chores, it is perhaps inexcusable to have missed the Naval Tweet Storm. Still, I did, and I was so glad that it, I then came across it from this podcast. Since then, I've eagerly listened to all of Naval's audios and interviews. Back to this show, thank you. I think perhaps the most understated aspect is the warmth between the two hosts slash brothers. There's an old Chinese saying, when brothers come together, there is nothing they cannot achieve. Um, difficult to prove, but I think the ambience of the show has a general uplifting effect on the listening experience. The subjects are always interesting and the, and the, and the discussions thought-provoking. I always enjoy the fact that the two hosts are in some way still figuring things out on their on the specific subjects and open to new ideas. Feels like a genuine conversation between the two of them and sometimes between them and the listeners also. Future content suggestions, how to catch and deal with cognitive slash emotional biases and useful mental models uh, a la Charlie Munger. Thanks very much and all the best. That's a very nice review. That's a very nice of a Thank well you to Rui. Out review. Was it Rui? Rui, Rui Wang, you're a legend. Thank you very much. And yeah, if you want to get a shout out on the on the podcast, make sure to leave us a, re- a review in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts. Cool. That's it for this week. Thanks a lot for listening and see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>